Well, thank you for the privilege of being here tonight. It's a pleasure to be here. I do remember being here back in 2008. Seven. Was it 2008? 2008. Eight. I actually spoke here twice, I think. My memory serves me correct. Yeah. Anyway, it's great to be here. Uh, I appreciate uh, your pastor, Jacob. I was with him in many classes, well, not many, several classes in seminary. I distinctly remember his love for fantasy baseball. He constantly, he's a statistics man. You guys know that about him? He loves stats. He's amazing, the stats he can remember. So I appreciate him and allowing us to be here. Uh, again, uh, I am the pastor of a church in Hamtramck, Michigan, just down I-75 away. Uh, we officially chartered the church in April of 2008, just, just this past April. And we're thankful for the, where the Lord's brought us. And uh, and I um, am thankful for Jason Elward, who is Jacob's brother. Jason spoke here not long ago. He and his family actually moved into Hamtramck. Uh, they're moving in in July uh, specifically to help out with the work there. And so we're thankful for all the Elwards and their ministry among us. I am married to Kristen, and we have six children. The oldest is a sophomore, well, junior in college, and the youngest is Ella. And so we have five girls, one boy, and... Uh, we have an intern who's at our house this summer, and so we always have a house full of people, don't we, love? It's always a pleasure. I want to speak to you tonight about God's faithfulness, about God's faithfulness. And what I'd like to do is we're going to do a Bible study. I want to see how, what kind of shape you guys are in, okay? You guys, you guys have Bibles? Does everybody have a Bible? You got your phone there? I'm going to see what, I'm going to see, okay, yeah, we're going to do sword drill. She waved her Bible up in here like that. We're going to be moving tonight, okay? I think sometimes it's helpful to get an overview of the biblical story to give us a greater appreciation for God's work throughout history. You know, oftentimes we're involved in our daily devotions and we're we're, we're hunkered down in Romans chapter chapter 6 and we're dealing with our our past enslavement to sin and now we're slaves to righteousness and we need to basically say goodbye to the old life and hello to the new life and and we're kind of, we're right in in that forest there dealing with our sin. I think oftentimes it's, just like you want to step back and get the beauty of a, a complete landscape, I think looking at an overview of the Bible is helpful for us to get, to get a greater appreciation for God's work and also His faithfulness. God's faithfulness is, is important to us, isn't it? You know, if you're dealing with a broken relationship, if you're dealing with financial difficulties, perhaps you've just been diagnosed with a very serious illness, Perhaps you have a wayward child. Perhaps you don't have any friends. You're just not sure what the future holds. And so you need a God that you can trust in. A God that you can place your faith in. Because the world around us is like shifting sand. Truth changes from day to day depending on who's writing the paper or who's giving the news, doesn't it? And as followers of Jesus Christ, as children of God, we have the rock of the Word of God. It is a sure foundation for our lives upon which we can place our faith. And faith is not just something that's out there. You know, we ask the person on the street what faith is. You know, I believe in something. You know, they might believe some nebulous divine figure. But faith always has to have what we call objective facts to fix itself on. Faith requires facts. Right? You know, if, if 
I have faith in this, this stand here, okay, that it will hold my Bible up, even though gravity is accelerating my Bible towards the earth at 9.32 meters per second squared, because I saw Clayton have his stuff up here earlier. That was the fact, and so I knew that I could put my Bible up here. Right? So we live our lives, we live a life of faith, right, based on facts. When you go to the doctor, he prescribes medication for you, doesn't he? Usually, if you go, he's going to give you some pills to take. And, and it's amazing that without even thinking about it, I mean, we just go there and get it from the pharmacy and, boom, we pop them in our mouth. <laughs> you know, because why? We have faith in the doctor. We have faith in the doctor. Why? Because he's proven himself again and again and again. We know those drugs have been tested again and again and again to do what they're supposed to do. I want you to have faith in the God of the universe because he does what he says he's going to do. And when he says he's going to do something, he follows up on it. That's hard to find now, isn't it? People who keep their word, people who, who do what they say they're going to do, isn't it? So what I want to do is I, tonight I want to look at an overview of the Bible and I want to try to increase your faith in God because we all need to have our faith built up. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at the bookends of the Bible and then we're going to follow the main theme through the Bible and see how God has been faithful from Genesis to Revelation or will be faithful in Revelation as well. So Genesis chapter 3, if you will. Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to look at, at verse 22. We're going to come back to Genesis 3 in a minute. But it's Genesis, Genesis 3.22. And this is after that, you know, it's, it's a horrific day in Adam and Eve's life. And he's pronounced his curse on, on uh, the serpent and on the woman. And, and he's cursed the ground. And then in verse 22 we see... Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove man out. And at the east of the garden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to what? The tree of life. So Adam and Eve were created to live forever. And we don't know exactly what this tree of life did, but we know that had they stayed in the garden, they could have eaten from the tree of life and they would have lived forever. But, they, but since sin had entered into the world and death with it, God did not want them around that tree. They, their access to that tree was blocked by the flaming swords, representing God's judgment. All right, now flip all the way to the end of your Bibles to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. I told you, I'm going to have you moving tonight. Get your fingers in shape. We're going to hit everywhere in between. Revelation 22. My Bible has the heading there. I don't know if yours does or not. It's helpful. It says, the river and what? The tree of life. Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river of water. I'm sorry. Then he showed me a river of the water of life. Clear as crystal coming from the throne of God. In of the Lamb, in the middle of the street, of the street, on either side of the river was what? The tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Okay, these were fruitful trees, giving life. And then, if you continue down in chapter 22, verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have what? Right, the right to the tree of life. 
And so we see these two bookends in the Bible. Right? Adam and Eve sinned, and the way to the tree of life was blocked. And then we see in Revelation, these people who've had their, their robes washed and cleaned, they now have access back to the tree of life. And so we see the storyline of the Bible is this. Ultimately, it's God's glory, right? Everything exists for the glory of God. Okay, but God is glorified as He works throughout history. Most specifically, He's most glorified as sinners turn from worshiping idols to the true and living God. And we see God doing that as, as the storyline from the Adam and Eve being blocked from the tree of life, the storyline of man's redemption through the Messiah as it is played out in Scripture all the way up to Revelation chapter 22. And that's the storyline of the Bible. God's redemption of mankind, which brings Him glory. And so what I want to do is just, I know this may seem simple to you guys, and you guys understand, you know this already, but I think it will help us. You know, it's just like if you take a fresh look at that beautiful view outside on a sunset and get an appreciation for what's in front of you so that you'll have faith in God. So, Back to Genesis 3.15. We're going to look at that storyline of God's faithfulness. I, I take that back. Let's go to Romans because I want to give you the, the overall theme. Romans, I'm going to have you jump around. Romans chapter 1, and then we're going to come back to Genesis. But Romans chapter 1 kind of explains the storyline that we're going to be looking at tonight. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. It's, it's, I'll be honest with you, it's nice being in a group where the people actually know how to how to get around the Bible. I'm thankful for the people that we have in Hamtramck, but generally people the people are new believers or they haven't been exposed to the Bible for much, and to find Matthew was hard for them. Okay, So I used to put everything on the PowerPoint and wait a long time. It's, uh, it's good to hear those papers moving. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel, set apart for the gospel of God which what he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we see God, it's God's gospel, and it's a gospel that he promised beforehand, right? We're talking about God's faithfulness. And so if Paul says that God promised this gospel beforehand, then we're going to see, as we look through the Bible, how God made good on His promise, right? If somebody makes good on their word, then we say they're faithful and they can be trusted. God's gospel made clear to us through the prophets about the Messiah who was promised beforehand, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, when we talk about Jesus Christ, is Christ his last name? Is that his surname? No, it describes who he is, right? Jesus, God says Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one promised in the Proto-Evangelicum in Genesis 3.15. So let's go back there. And now once we get back to Genesis 3.15, we're going to work our way systematically forward, okay? So it's going to be easier on you now. Genesis 3.15. And you guys are familiar with this. All right, we, just, we just looked at the end of this passage a minute ago. God has spoken 
He's speaking to the serpent now. He's cursed him. Right? He's he said, You were proud, but now I'm gonna make you eat dirt, man. Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Verse fifteen. In the midst of this terrible, horrific day, this day of doom and gloom, God gives a glimpse of grace right here in the garden. That's the kind of God we have. In the midst of our failures, he inserts grace, and he does it right here for Adam and Eve. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I like to read it this way. And he will crush your head. He will destroy the works of Satan. This child that will be born of the woman, this Messiah, will crush the works of Satan. He will destroy the works of the evil one, the liar. This is the Messiah. This is the glimpse of the Messiah. I'm sure that Eve was thinking, wow, I'm going to give birth to the Messiah. I'm going to give birth to a child, and this child is going to reverse everything. And we see here in the text, if you go down to chapter 4, verse 1, now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have given, I have gotten the man-child with the help of the Lord. I'm sure she was probably thinking, this guy's the one, right? He's the one who's going to be the Messiah. I mean, think about it logically from her point of view, not knowing what you know. This, this, this is going to be the Messiah. Wrong. He's a murderer. And then his brother is killed by the murderer. And so this isn't the Messiah. We find out. And, and Adam and Eve have more children. Their children have children. And so we see the storyline of Genesis. As we get to Genesis chapter 5, God gives us, what, the lineage from Adam up to who? Right, well, to Noah, right? We're, we're getting that way, right? But to Noah. Okay, and then we go from Noah up to Genesis 11. And God gives us the lineage from Noah, okay, and specifically his son Shem, right? Because he goes through Shem. From Shem up to chapter 11, we get Terah, and then we get Abraham, correct? And so in then Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 12, let's look there quickly. Genesis chapter 12. And this is a very shadowy or unclear glimpse of what's going to happen. But we know that a promise is being made to Abraham by God. God just chooses Abraham, not anything that Abraham's done. He just chooses him of his own good pleasure. In chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and, I, and the one who curses you I will curse. And what? And, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. And then if you flip forward, just for the sake of time, well, let's just look at it. Genesis chapter 17. Yeah, he restates his covenant in different ways. But I want to look at Genesis 17.7. 7. He kind of reiterates uh, what he's going to be doing through Abraham in, in chapter 7 of 17, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and and your descendants after you throughout their generations for what? An everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. 
Okay, and he talks about giving them the land. And so God promises to bless the entire earth through Abraham by crushing Satan and his works. And he's making an everlasting covenant. This is not just something that's going to have a temporary effect. It's going to last forever. And so, and so Abraham receives that promise. And, and, and you are gathered from the air with the story where Abraham's looking for that child of the promise and, and he takes in, things into his own hands and that doesn't go too well. But then he and his wife give birth, birth to Isaac. Right? And, and Isaac gives birth to Jacob. And Jacob gives birth to 12 sons. But through which of those sons is that Messiah line? Judah, right? And we have this almost like, where did this story come from in Genesis chapter 38? You know, you've got this great story of God's sovereign work in, in, in the life of Joseph, and you come up on this story in Genesis chapter 38, like, wow, why is this even in the Bible? But that, in that story, God's providence and his sovereignty is, is, is highlighted even more than so than the story of Joseph in some ways. I mean, if God was saving his people and saving the remnant and making a nation. But when we understand what happens at the end of Genesis 38, right? we have the story of Judah and Tamar. You know, it's a, it's a made-for-Hollywood story in Genesis 38. But what, what was the name of the son given to Judah and Tamar? Perez. Turn to Ruth chapter 4. Flip forward to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. We're just moving. Ruth chapter 4. Beautiful story of Ruth. Story of God's sovereignty as well and His mercy to Gentiles. His redemption. But also a tremendous picture of His sovereignty in, in making the way for the Messiah. Genesis 4, and we'll we'll just look at verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Remember, I was talking about Perez. These are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. To Hezron was born Ram. To Ram, Amenadab. To Amenadab was born Nashon. To Nashon, Salmon. Who is Salmon's? Wife, this is this is a sixty-four thousand dollar question. Rahab, she got it. Rahab was Salmon's wife. Another juicy story there, right? That people just don't think about. Rahab was Salmon's wife. They gave birth to Boaz, who was Boaz's wife. The heroine of the story, Ruth, right? Boaz gave birth to Obed. Obed to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse who? David, and there we find the purpose of the book of Ruth, really, was to show us the lineage of David and to bring us into what we got first and second Samuel, leading us into this prototypical king, David. He was the prototypical earthly king that pointed us to the perfect king, Jesus Christ, the one we're looking at right now, his lineage. And so flip forward now to second Samuel 7, second Samuel 7. And now we're going to hone, we're going to we're going to lock in on. We've been looking at the line of the Messiah. Now we're going to lock in on God's covenant to David. 
his covenant with David and how David, how God is in a sense extending his covenant with Abraham through David towards that Messiah. And we know in, in, in 2 Samuel 7, we have the Davidic covenant, right? So let's look at chapter 7, verse 12. Okay, God's speaking to Nathan, and Nathan's going to give this information to David. When your days are complete, verse 12, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. Forever. Jump down to verse 16. Speaking to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so God is making a promise to David there that he will have someone on the throne. And this is important to a king that he wanted to know that someone from his line was going to be on the throne. And and I don't I think David we don't know how much David knew about what God was saying here. But I believe David, in all his failings, was a man of great faith. And he believed what God said because God was faithful to David. If you read the story of David, God was faithful to him. David understood that, and his psalms reflect that. And so God extends, in a sense, the Abrahamic covenant. And this covenant, David, he says, you know what? Somebody's going to be on your throne forever. Somebody from your family line. Let's jump forward to Psalm now. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Book of Psalms, Psalm 2. Now, in my Bible, and probably in yours, there are subscripts there under the, the, the book, right? Psalm 3, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom. And, and so that's kind of added after it was actually written. But Psalm 2 doesn't have anything there, right? But we know who wrote Psalm 2, and we'll talk about it in a minute. It was David. David wrote Psalm 2 as well. Why? Because, because Luke tells us he did, okay, through Peter and through Paul. But in Psalm 2, in Psalm 2, we get a glimpse of this king who will come from the line of David. I'm not going to read the whole psalm. He begins by talking about the nations being in an up, uproar. They, they reject the God of the universe. They reject God as their king. In verse 8, he says, But as for me, God is saying, I have installed my king upon Zion in Jerusalem on my holy hill. So God is saying, I'm going to do that. Now in verse 7, the king is speaking. Okay, you following me? Verse 6, God is saying, I'm going to install my king. In verse 7, the king is speaking. This would be the Messiah. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Today I have made you the heir. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. In the very ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall shatter them like earthenware. So he says, today I have made you the heir, and I will give you everything as an inheritance. And that picture there is of Jesus Christ ruling on the earth for a thousand years. And if you look at the book of Revelation, you'll notice that expression, that I will break them with a rod of iron, mentioned in the book of Revelation more than once. 
This is a picture of Jesus Christ ruling on Mount Zion, the holy hill, is the king of the world. And the nations may try to roar up against Jesus, but he's going to smash him with the rod of iron. And so David, in his psalm, is foretelling this Messiah that will come, this one who will crush, crush the works of Satan. All right, let's skip forward again to Isaiah chapter 9. You guys are doing great. Isaiah chapter 9, keep going forward. Isaiah chapter 9. You're familiar with this passage. You read it every Christmas. This is 700 years. Okay, so Psalm, Psalm 2 was probably written around 1,000 years before Christ. And so we now, we're, now we're in the book of Isaiah, which is written some 740, 750 years before the birth of Christ. And Isaiah 7, 14, we're not going to go there. That's the whole prediction of prophecy made that, that a virgin will give birth and will call his name Emmanuel. But in chapter 9 in Isaiah, look at verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Why? Because he's going to have a rod of iron, right? Okay. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then and how long? Forevermore. And so Isaiah is making this prediction of this Messiah who would sit on the throne of David and rule and there will be peace and he'll sit there for how long? Evermore. Forever. It's an everlasting covenant. Flip forward to Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah was a prophet writing to the nation of Judah. Jeremiah 33:14 This comes just on the heels of the new covenant, right? The new covenant in Jeremiah 32:40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from them. And then he goes down in, in chapter 33 and he's making this covenant he's He's, he's telling Judah and Israel, God is going to restore you. You messed up really bad. You're in captivity. Okay, remember why you're here. You didn't worship God the way you should, but God's going to restore you. He's going to restore you. Now, the problem is, when God makes promises, we don't always know when they're going to be fulfilled or when they're going to come to fruition. And this is just a practical thing we get to later on when we understand the promises of God. We don't know when exactly God is going to fulfill them in our lives or how He's going to do it. But in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Jeremiah 33, verse 14, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of who? David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth with a rod iron. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord God, the Lord is, I'm sorry, the, the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Right? So there he's, there he's confirming again this promise that was made to David of one who would sit on his throne. Now flip forward to Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. This is amazing. I love, you know, Ezekiel's kind of, he's kind of a weird guy, but... You know, but this, you know, in 37, we begin with the valley of dry bones. You know, can you raise these bones up? You know, and God says, yes, I will. Okay, and then, again, it, he, he talks about um, he's going to restore um, Judah and Israel. Let's look at verse 20, 24, though, okay? Verse 24. My servant David will be king over them. He's, he's, he's looking towards the future, okay? He's looking towards the future, when Israel will be restored to her glory, and he says, my servant David will be king over them. I mean, is he talking about David, the King David from 2 Samuel? He's not talking about him. He's talking about the one who would sit on David's throne. One like David. David was the prototypical human king. Jesus Christ is the perfect king forever. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live in the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which our fathers lived. And they will live on it. And their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. And they go down to 27. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Does that sound familiar from the book of Revelation? And so he's looking forward to this time, forward to this time in the future when Israel is going to be restored. I believe that's during the millennial period, during that thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, when he's going to rule on David's throne, and Israel's going to have peace. Because, David, because Jesus is going to be their king, and anyone who tries to rise up against them is going to be crushed. And so we see that the God's promise to David will come to pass. Now let's flip forward to Matthew. We're heading into the New Testament now. Matthew. Matthew. Chapter 1. You're familiar with this as well. The genealogy of the Messiah. The genealogy of the Messiah. Now the purpose of Matthew, one of his purposes is to make it clear to the Jews that the Messiah who walked on the earth, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the one they crucified, the one who rose from the dead three days after that, had has the right to be called the son of David. He has the right to sit on David's throne. And so to that end, what he does is he gives a genealogy there at the very beginning of his book. He's, he's saying, look, wake up, Jews. Listen, this guy has... The credentials. He has the pedigree that you're looking for. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of who? David. And the son of who? Abraham. Don't you love the storyline of the Bible and how it's a cohesive unit? It's not just some book of these these good thoughts, you know, that are just kind of mishmashed and thrown together. If you ever look at the Quran, the Quran is something kind of like that. The Quran just doesn't make sense sometimes. The Bible is a cohesive whole with a storyline that runs from the beginning to the end. And we see here that Matthew's pulling it together, right? And so he gives the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, right? And he winds up with Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, right? And, and yes, 
Jesus was Joseph's stepson, but he had the inheritance rights that Joseph was due, which Joseph was was of the lineage of David, correct? And so we see Matthew continues our understanding of who the Messiah is through the line of David. Let's flip forward to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. See, we're getting closer and closer to Revelation. Aren't you guys glad? Acts chapter 2. We're moving that way. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Peter is preaching this tremendous sermon that all preachers would love to have been able to preach. Acts chapter 2. And now that I'm, we're looking at Acts chapter 2, I'm reminded that I said that David wrote Psalm 2. And if you want to know why I said David wrote Psalm 2, look at Acts 4.25 and Acts 13.33. Peter says that David wrote that psalm, and Paul says that David wrote that psalm. Okay, now, Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Brethren, okay, and let me just back up a little bit. If you go uh, back up a little bit further, what Peter is trying to say is that God raised Jesus from the dead. He is a resurrected Savior. You killed him. You guys murdered Jesus, but he rose from the dead. Right there in verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And he goes through and he quotes Psalm 16, verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat seat one of his descendants on his throne, 2 Samuel 7, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That, As Psalm 16 says, that the Christ, that he neither was abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus was raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let the house of Israel know for certain that God made both made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so Peter makes it clear that Jesus rose from the dead, and David spoke about that in the Psalms that he wrote, and that this Jesus was a descendant of David. God is faithful to his promises. He promised a Messiah in Genesis 3.15. He promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. We have Israel, a few million strong, coming into the promised land. The promise of the Messiah continues through a rebellious nation, a nation that's sent into exile. And while they're in exile, the prophets continue to prophesy this coming Messiah who would crush the works of Satan. And we see at the very beginning of the New Testament that Matthew says that Jesus is from the line of David, the one who was foretold to be the Messiah. And that he rose from the dead. And now we flip forward to Revelation as we bring things to a close. Revelation chapter 22 again. This time verse 16. Revelation 22, 16. 
is Jesus talking. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am what? The root and the descendant of who? David, the bright morning star. I am the descendant of David. I am the Messiah. I have triumphed over Satan. I have crushed the works of Satan. He is now burning in, you know, this is a future thing, but just prior to this, he's crushed Satan and thrown him into, the, into, the, into hell with Hades and death. And he is the descendant of David, punctuating the faithfulness of God from Genesis to Revelation. That God keeps His promises. That when God says He's going to do it, He's going to do it. And we can trust in Him. There are facts there that show that God does what He says He's going to do. And so as we close now, as we close, I want to give you a few reasons why we should trust in God. God is faithful. And so we should trust Him for our salvation, right? Of all the things that we need to trust God for, we need to trust Him for our salvation. And we do. We do. Let's look at Titus chapter 1, and I'm going to make some comments about this. So flip back to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. God is faithful. Trust Him for your salvation. Paul again, talking about Jesus Christ being the promised one in the beginning of one of his letters. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. Right? We just looked at that, that long ago that God promised that salvation to His people. Trust God for your salvation. I would imagine on a Wednesday night here, most of you guys know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You guys are all Christians, right? You trust, you trust Christ for your salvation. Here's the amazing thing. You ever heard the argument of the greater to the lesser? For instance, if God created the universe God created the universe and he sustains the universe can God not sustain you right yeah he can if God provides for the needs of all the animals around the world which I believe he does providentially can he not provide for your needs he can and so if God can save you, if He can take somebody who is spiritually dead and give them spiritually life, spiritual life, if He can do that great thing, can He not also meet all the other needs that you have in your life? He can. But the problem is, is that we become so faithless when it comes to things less than our salvation. The way we live our lives based on our own strength and our own abilities in spite of the facts of Scripture where God tells us to trust in Him and walk, in, walk by faith and not by sight, defies the fact that we trust Christ for our salvation. How can we say we trust Jesus Christ for our salvation if we're not going to trust Christ to take care of our broken relationships, the difficult children we may have, the trouble at work, our health problems? It's a life of hypocrisy that we've all fallen to before. 
And so if God can save you, He can take care of the rest of your needs. And He's worthy of being trusted because we've seen throughout Scripture that He is a faithful God. So trust God for your salvation, but trust Him for today, as I have just said. Trust Him for today. Trust, trust Christ for today. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pull it into two points. Trust Christ, trust God for tomorrow. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to close on this one. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Trust God for your salvation. Trust Christ for your salvation. Trust God for today. And trust Him for tomorrow. Trust Him for tomorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, at verse 18, Paul here is defending his apostleship again. And really, the Corinthian church, they were just busting his chops because he kind of changed his travel itinerary. He, may, he said he was coming. Something you know, providentially interfered him from coming. And now they're trying to question his apostleship. He says, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. He's saying, look, when I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do something. Just like God is faithful and He tells the truth, I am telling you the truth. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. Verse 19, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in Him. He's saying, also they were accusing Him of not preaching the truth in Christ. They're saying, look, I preach the truth in Christ, and Christ is the truth. He is yes. He's not yes and no. Christ is yes. Now in verse 20. For as many as are the promises of God and Him, Jesus Christ, they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. All the promises of God made from Genesis to Revelation are yes in Jesus Christ. The scriptures are about Jesus Christ. And so everything that God promises is yes, it is the truth. It, is, it is, will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you can trust in God because it is worked through Christ. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. So when God says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, we can say amen because God is faithful. When God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions, we can say yes because of Jesus Christ and yes because God is faithful. When God says that He takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh and places His Spirit within us so that we will obey His commands and then He's given us His Spirit as a pledge of our inheritance, we can say yes in Jesus Christ because God is faithful. When God says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will behold you with my righteous right hand. It is yes in Jesus Christ. He is faithful, and He can be trusted. When Jesus says, I am with you even to the end of the age, it is yes, because He is faithful. When Jesus, when, when Jesus says, Upon this rock I will build my church, it is yes in Jesus Christ, because He is faithful. When you read that Jesus, who has been taken from, from heaven, will come back in the same way that you saw him go, we read in Acts, it is yes 
Because He is faithful. Jesus will return. When Paul says, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed because death has been swallowed up in victory, it is yes in Jesus Christ, because God is faithful. We've seen the faithfulness of God in Scripture. He makes promises to us that He is faithful to, and we need to trust Him. In everything. In everything. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. You uh, have been faithful throughout the generations. You are from everlasting to everlasting a faithful God. And Your faithfulness is most graciously and wonderfully displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The fullest and clearest revelation of the Godhead we know of given to us in Scripture. And we thank You for Him. We thank You for Jesus and His faithfulness to us. Lord, we are sinners. We uh, constantly turn to ourselves. We turn to our own abilities. We look at tomorrow and we have fear because we think about what we can do and what we can handle. And Father, I pray that as we've looked at Your faithfulness tonight and what You can do and what You have done and what You will do, I pray that our eyes will be taken away from our own abilities and will be placed upon Your greatness and Your love and Your grace and on Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for this community of believers here uh, at Ambassador Baptist Church. Lord, I, I ask that um, You would give their pastor great wisdom as he studies the Word each week, as he prepares uh, to preach and teach. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, he would speak the truth and that the truth would penetrate the hearts of those who listen and of, of his own heart, Lord. And I pray that those who sit here will listen with a desire to be changed for your glory. And I pray that this church will rally around the Great Commission, a desire to see the church built up for your glory in this community. Lord, I do uphold this congregation for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.